Good morning. I don't know about you, I'm blessed already. We love coming to this church. We really do. It is such an encouragement for us, and we've missed y'all. My, my church that I attend in Michigan was, was locked down for 30 weeks this year, and um, my wife kept saying, maybe we can figure out how to get over to Riverview at some point. We'd love to just see everybody again, and uh, thankfully, God has worked that out this weekend, so we're grateful. Um, my message this morning, I'm going to call Lessons for Living in Babylon, and my text is going to be based on uh, some verses within Jeremiah 29. My family and I have just finished reading through and, and studying through the book of Jeremiah, uh, who is sometimes called the weeping prophet, uh, sometimes thought of as the doom and gloom guy in the Bible. Uh, we also just are working through a, a biography on the life of Jeremiah. If that sounds a little odd to you, it, it actually is kind of a really great idea, I think. There's a, a British preacher by the name of F.B. Meyer, uh, M-E-Y-E-R, and um, he had written, you know, over 100 years ago, a series of biographies on Bible people. You know, so he has one on Elijah. We, we did uh, Peter, I think it was, earlier this year because we were reading through the epistles of Peter and then we, we read the biography. So just having finished up the book of Jeremiah, we're really enjoying this, this biography, which, which is so interesting because he just like tells the story of this guy's life. And so he puts a lot of historical information in there and gives you some context, you know, just written as a chronological uh, life story, which is really fascinating. So um, I've really been digging deep into Jeremiah here over the last few months. And as we were coming up to the election time and as I was praying about that in my own heart and just trying to ask the Lord, you know, what's the posture of my heart in this and what do you want me to learn from this time and and in what ways uh, do I need to maybe see things differently or see things more clearly? Um, I felt really compelled to some of the, the things that I was seeing in Jeremiah that felt to me like they were very relevant and very timely for us. And so I, I want to try to, as much as I can, extract some of these ideas and share them for us today that hopefully we can learn from and we can apply into our current cultural situation uh, I do want to run a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning and say that there is a bit of a tension in doing something like I'm about to do, uh, where you take things that were stated in the book of Jeremiah and you try to apply them uh, to our situation today. Uh, there's a, a biblical discipline, or sorry, a theological category or a discipline within sort of formal, you know, academic theology. Uh, that's called uh, the study of biblical hermeneutics, hermeneutics. And of course, that is the, the study of people named Herman. Uh, no, <laughs> hermeneutics is the study of the scripture within its own context. So understanding that you can't just pull a verse or uh, pull a text or something out of the context in which it's written, because you may not 
understand the meaning of it without really understanding it within its proper context. And I think the classic story of that you've probably heard before. Um, you know, I, I used to, when I was a, a child, I, I used to sing a song with my Sunday school class, you know, when I was a little bitty guy. And uh, the song said, uh, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line, which sounds good. I grew up and learned a little bit more about biblical hermeneutics, and now I thank God that's not true, uh, because there are some promises in the Bible that have to do with, like, God's judgment on the Edomites and the Chaldeans and so forth, and like, this is what I'm going to do to you. You know, I'm thankful that's not a promise for me. <laughs> I'm not claiming that one. I'm not going to put that into a scripture black up on my wall. Uh, those are promises for them, and they can keep those promises. Um, so you have to understand, you know, the Bible in its proper context, or you can kind of get messed up. But anyway, the classic story, which I know some of you have heard, was the, the story of the new Christian who... Uh, was very sincere in his heart, but he didn't understand how to study the Bible properly. So he sat down with his Bible, you know, one morning and he just said, God, I, I just want to, I just want to do whatever you want me to do. And I'm going to open up my Bible and I'm going to read it today. And whatever I read, I'm going to do it, which is a pretty good posture of the heart, generally speaking. And so he opened his Bible and he closed his eyes and he put his finger down on a verse and he says, and, it, and he read, and Judas went out and hanged himself. And he thought, well, that doesn't sound very good. I think I want a second opinion. So he, he closed his eyes and he put his finger on another verse. And he looked and it says, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> he thought, I don't know, something's not working here. Let me try one more time. And he closed his eyes, he put his finger on a verse. And it said, and what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> so we have to... We have to uh, graduate beyond that approach to Bible study to where we understand the Bible within its proper context. So I, I do recognize that as we look at these verses here in Jeremiah chapter 29, that it was written for a very specific time, a very specific context, a specific people in a specific place. So I understand that. I get that. That's my disclaimer at the beginning. Say So we won't have a one-to-one -one correlation where we can say in, in, uh, with clarity everything that's in this text we apply to us today in our particular cultural situation. However, with the disclaimer out of the way, um, there is much that is applicable uh, from these passages in these somewhat different but somewhat similar Situation. So just, again, cultural background, kind of understand where we're at here. Um, the prophets had been pleading with the people of Israel for decades, um, really centuries, to give up their idolatry, to give up their syncretism, the worship of Yahweh, the true God, and the worship of false gods, the, the worship of idols. And the prophets had been calling them to complete holiness and complete obedience to the one true God. And largely, the messages of the prophets were ignored. Sometimes, especially in Judah, there would be these little moments of revival or awakening, and it would seem that maybe in the life of a king like Josiah, for example, or Hezekiah, that, that the hearts of the people would turn. 
but it would be kind of short-lived. And then you'd see in the next generation, the downward spiral, or it would say he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but nevertheless, the high places were not removed and so forth. And so you just see this building and building and building. And in Jeremiah's lifetime, He's this prophet who feels so frustrated because he's calling out to the people for repentance and their hearts are cold, their hearts are stone, they mock him, they laugh at him. He kind of realizes at a certain point, like I'm getting absolutely nowhere. Things are getting worse and worse. And his message was increasingly not, you know, return to the Lord or judgment is gonna come. It was unequivocal, judgment is going to happen And it even got to the point where it was like, judgment is going to happen and there is nothing you can do to reverse it. It's just gonna happen. Now that would be kind of a difficult place to be at a prophet, as a prophet, because nobody wants to hear that message, for one. He doesn't wanna preach that message. He doesn't wanna believe that message. He's a man who not only loves God, but he loves his nation. You know, he wants to see things put right. And yet there's this, Word of the Lord that keeps coming to Jeremiah saying that the Babylonians are going to come in and they are going to take you into exile. You're going to be there for 70 years and this is just flat out going to happen. So that's kind of the background to this is this message of judgment that's coming on God's people. And it's, it's not a happy time. It's not a time of rejoicing. It's a time of great sorrow. So let me just go here in verse 4. We'll pick up and and start reading Jeremiah 29, verse 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version ESV today. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so this is not just Jeremiah's opinion. This is the word of God. This is God speaking to those exiles, to those people who are being dragged away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So I want to focus in on the words Jerusalem and Babylon. Well, Jerusalem being the capital of Judah, you've got the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of of Judah. Jerusalem is the center of true worship. It's where the temple is. It's where... Uh, you know, and throughout, throughout uh, Jeremiah, you see the people giving lip service to the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they would say. But in their hearts, they're far from God. They have some sort of external veneer of religiosity, but they're really not truly following God. But Jerusalem was supposed to be this shining city on a hill. This was the, the center of true devotion and, and worship of God. This is the ideal. The ideal within the Hebrew mind at this point is Jerusalem. You know, that would be the picture of the good old days, the, the, the right thing, if you will. Babylon, on the other hand, the complete opposite of that. Babylon being everything that was wrong with the world. It represented totalitarianism, represented a cruel dictatorship, but also just everything that you could think of in terms of, of idolatry and wickedness and carnality and, you know, again, all the things that the, the true people of God would disdain and not want to have anything to do with, that was Babylon. 
Now, Babylon shows up in the book of Revelation and is mentioned several times in chapters 16 through 18, and, and it's used there not so much in a geographical sense as a physical location. In that context, it's spoken as a spiritual reality. It's a bit of a metaphor, and that translates, I think, to us and our understanding. Sometimes we speak about living in the midst of Babylon, and I think that's accurate for us to talk about this this carnal, pagan world system in which we live that is hostile to God. It doesn't recognize the authority of God. It is very much the system of man, if you will. And so the people of God are moving from Jerusalem to Babylon. And as I read this, I think about what we have had in the last 400 years here in the United States. I mean, we're, we're really celebrating the 400th anniversary of Plymouth Rock, of this nation being founded. And if you read the Mayflower Compact, they wrote in the Mayflower Compact when they came here that the purpose of them establishing this new nation was to be a light, to be a city on a hill that it was supposed to be bringing the gospel and the truth of Christ to the natives here and also to establish a nation that would be a beacon to the rest of the world. That was the intended purpose. And this American experiment is unprecedented in human history. We have had more religious freedom. We have had more religious toleration in America than has ever existed in the history of the world. And particularly in terms of Christianity, America has been the greatest launching point of the promotion of the gospel message, again, in the history of the world. Now, when we think of America, you can go back to any time period and you can look at it and say, was it ideal in 1640? No. Was it ideal in 1720? No. Was it ideal in 1840? No. I mean, you can go back and you can look at periods in history, and you can see that America has always had problems. You can see that there have always been uh, its deficiencies. There have been times where it fell into to great lethargy in terms of its spiritual vitality, and thankfully, God has sent some awakenings and sent some revivals. We had the first great revival with Whit Whitfield and Wesley, and we had the second great awakening, and you, know, you have these um, these moves of God that have have brought us uh, you know times of, of refreshing and times of, of newness and vitality that have been brought back to our nation. But whether America was ever something that we could call a Christian nation, and people you know debate that, um, there was undoubtedly a Christian ethos. There's a a Christian morality, there's sort of a, you know, people were so informed by scripture within this culture, they kind of knew it intuitively, even if they didn't buy into it personally, even if it wasn't something that they personally identified with biblical Christianity, there was a restraining influence within our American culture that we are still benefiting from to this day. We are, you know, kind of like we're, we're breathing the last remaining fumes, if you will, of the vestiges of the fires that used to burn of religious fervor and, and Christianity within America. 
But when you look at the statistics and when you study the, the sort of sociological trends that are happening within the United States, we have turned a hard, hard left in the last decade. I mean, again, just following the stats, particularly when you look at the millennials, when you look at the young people, those who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s, um, there's a hard shift away from the things of Christianity. Um, and so what happens is we've, we've, we've entered into what, you know, Francis Schaeffer in the 1970s said America is a post-Christian society. And he said that in the 1970s, called us post-Christian. Um, if you go, and, he, and I think in many ways he was right, but if you go from 1970 to today, in the last 50 years, we are substantively more post-Christian than we were in 1970. And it's trending continually in that direction, becoming more and more post-Christian. And so what we see is we see a trend that is not irrevocable in terms of, you know, I, I wouldn't say uh, from a, a prophetic standpoint or from an omniscient standpoint, this ship can't be turned around or there couldn't be a revival or there couldn't be an awakening because certainly there could be. God could, could choose to move on people's hearts. We could see, you know, some phenomenal stirring of, of repentance in our nation. I mean, we'd, things could happen. God could sovereignly intervene. But based on the trajectory that we're going, when you just look at the, the sociological statistics, um, without a divine intervention, uh, some mass reawakening or revival, some, some huge repentance uh, that, frankly, I don't see looming on the horizon. I would love to see, and I'm praying for, and to the best of my ability, working towards that end. But I, I, don't, I don't see any indicators. I don't see anything that, that tells me, uh, you know, I, I think we have reason to, to believe that will happen. Um, but we, well, apart from that, statistically... We've turned a corner that we won't recover from. I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but I guess I've been hanging out in Jeremiah for a while. I mean, we have turned a corner that we will not recover from in terms of what we had. We've lost it. You have a generation now who can't teach the principles of Christianity because they never learned them. You know, so just continuing on the track that we're going, if, if nothing seismically shifts, we're going to continue to become more and more and more post-Christian. And if you want to know what that looks like, you just simply go to Western Europe. And you look at the nations where the Protestant Reformation had the greatest impact, and you look at where they are today. You look at Germany. You look at Holland. You look at England. That's, that's where we're going. That's where we're trending. And the same thing could be true there. They're extremely post-Christian, right? Could God bring an awakening to Western Europe? Absolutely, certainly could. But, but we're trending hard in that direction. So when we see this exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, I think in a spiritual sense, I feel that, that exile. I feel us heading. I feel like we are marching from Jerusalem to Babylon with Jerusalem on our backside and looking forward to Babylon. And I'm not enjoying the journey. This is not something that, I want to see happen. You know, it's, it's, it's tempting sometimes to, to look back over your shoulder at Jerusalem and say, man, can we, can we just go back? Like, can we just go back to what it was? You know, I talk to people who are older than I am, people in their 60s and their 70s, especially the 80s. And I say, what do you think about America? 
is this, is this like the America you grew up in? And they say, this is not the America that I grew up in. I'm 45 years old. I can say to you emphatically, this is not the America I grew up in. I mean, I'm only 45. This is, this is not the America I grew up in. We've taken a hard left. So I, I feel and identify with, I think, what Jeremiah's feeling here in Jeremiah 29 this sense of we're going the wrong way. And it, it doesn't look to me like going back is an option. So if that's true, and I hope and pray that it's not. Again, I'm not speaking this fatalistically. I'm not speaking this as a prophet. I'm not saying I know the future. Uh, God surprises us. You know, he breaks in. He does things that, you know, sociologists don't know how to explain. And, and we pray for that. We work toward that end. But as it, as it appears at the moment, it seems like from a spiritual standpoint, seems to be the trajectory. So if from a spiritual standpoint, we as God's people are going into Babylon where we're not in control, we're not the leaders, we're not dictating policy, we're not the ones who are, you know, kind of making up the rules around here. We're more or less captives within a culture that is hostile to our faith, our belief, our practice, how should we then live? What should we do as God's people in Babylon? What does that look like for us? Because for some of us, we've just been in Jerusalem so long, we've enjoyed it, we've taken it for granted, and we've just gotten used to life as we've known it. What if that's taken away from us and we don't get to live in Jerusalem anymore? We live in this hostile pagan culture. What does God tell us to do? Let's look at verse five. He says something that is extremely counterintuitive. It is not the advice that I would give people, who, God's people who were sent to Babylon. I wouldn't think of this at all, but this is God's word, not mine. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now what jumped out at me in this verse is that there are four verbs. And so I wanna look at these four verbs for just a minute. First thing he says is build. Okay, so let's try to take this as life lessons for us. What is it that God's telling us? And I, and I do believe that these principles apply to us as God's people living in Babylon today. So build, what does that mean? One of the key buzzwords of postmodernism, this era that uh, sociologists have identified that has really been dominant in the United States since the 1960s, one of the, the key words is deconstructionism. Well, I mean, you think of it etymologically, what does that mean? It's a big word, but it's not that hard to get our minds around deconstruction is the opposite of construction. It's tearing down. And our culture since the 1960s has been defined by a movement of deconstruction. deconstruction deconstructing the concept of law. Deconstructing morality. Deconstructing the traditional family. Deconstructing our history. Deconstructing the, the civil 
uh, ordinances, deconstructing the restraints that are in society. That has been the battle cry of what's called the progressive movement since the 1960s, deconstruction. Deconstruction is the opposite of the heart of God. What did God do? God created. What does the enemy do? Kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy doesn't create things. He doesn't have that capacity. And the enemy doesn't build. The enemy tears down. That's the, that's the mode of the enemy. And when you see a society that has committed itself for the last 60 years to deconstruction, you know whose heart that comes from. That does not come from the heart of God. So we as Christians, when we seek to follow God, when we seek to emulate what he's like on this planet as we live, we build, build houses. Now that's an odd thing when you're in Babylon because you're thinking when you're in Babylon, we're not gonna be here long. We're gonna, we're gonna get out of here. We're gonna go back to Jerusalem. Build houses. Houses represent stability. The people who were adults when they went to Babylon were gonna die in Babylon. God had already decreed it. It was gonna happen. They were gonna live out the rest of their days within that culture. God's trying to tell them, anchor down. Get ready. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get zapped out of this. You're gonna be here. Prepare yourself. So build. Build houses. What's the next verb? Live. Boy, I feel that word. I feel that word deep. Live. How many of you felt like you just would love to experience that word this year? I just want to live. Not that I'm in fear of dying. I'm okay with dying. I'm all right with that. But man, while I'm here, I want to live. I feel like the world is telling me, stop living. Put your life on hold. Lock down. And I'm not getting political here. I am not getting political. This is not mask, no mask. I'm not going there. Don't read that into this. That's not what I'm saying. There's a possibility that all of us in this room could die. I mean, that's just the fragility of, of life. That's, that's a reality. It's that way for every single person, every single moment. Yeah, there's a possibility of death. Let's, let's acknowledge that. Let's not let that define us. Let's not that, let that be the thing that consumes our focus, that consumes and controls what we do here. We're supposed to live. Live in them. Don't just lock down in them. Live. Live in them. Boy, I feel this. I felt it a little bit this morning in worship. Just this like, oh, wow, this feels so good. Let's live. Why is that? Jesus said, I am the life, John 14, 6. Life is not merely something that God does. When we talk about the eternality of God, life isn't just something that God does. Life is who God is. God is life. 
and he's given us this life. And he said, Jesus said that he's come to give us life and that more abundantly. Abundant life. Don't just go to Babylon. Don't just exist in Babylon. Live. Live in Babylon. It's okay. God's still here. He's still in control. You still have him. You still have him even in Babylon. Live. Don't stop living just because you're in Babylon. Live. Then he says, plant gardens. Plant. It's the other verb. Plant. There's something about planting that makes you think about the future. Because it's not instant. You put a seed in the ground and you wait and you have something to look forward to. We need that right now. Plant. I'm, I obviously can't go outside and plant. You're like, well, see, I, there's that hermeneutical problem. I don't know how we're going to go out there and plant right now because this, this man knows nothing about farming. I can tell that. This is not when you go out and do it. It's, well, the principle, the principle, plant. I was looking at this passage here in uh, Genesis 22, or sorry, in Genesis 8:22, And this was a passage that was given and promised to Noah after the flood, right? Because God had just wiped out the earth like this total cataclysm and everything got destroyed. And God makes this promise to Noah in Genesis 8:22, and he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I think we can take some hope and some consolation and some promise in this. This is one of the things that encourages me when I hear people like Al Gore say, we will all be dead by 2040 because of global warming. I go, well, we might all be dead by 2040, but not from global warming. You know, <laughs> Why is that? Because God says cold's going to be around until the very end. You know, we, and there will be seed time and there will be harvest. They say, well, our whole planet is going to turn to drought. Well, no, it won't. Because we have promises here about Till, as, as long as the earth remains, I mean, that's the very end, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. In World War II, in 1944, when it just, the war had been going on since 1939, and it looked as though, uh, you know, this, who knows, the world could end. People had fear of that. Someone made a statement, and they attributed it to Martin Luther, the reformer, um, Best as we know from history, Martin Luther never said it, which is true of most quotes. You know, anytime I, I want to make, uh, you know, quote, quote something, I never remember from history exactly who said it. So I usually say, as, as Thomas Jefferson said, or as Winston Churchill said, or, you know, there's a couple of those guys that just said a lot. And so I usually just attribute it to them. And <laughs> I think most people do. Um, but, so I don't think Martin Luther said this, but someone at that time said, if, the wor- if I knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. That's given me a lot of thought. I don't even know if that's good theology. 
I'm not 100% endorsing the statement, but it's given me a lot of food for thought. And that what does that say about the person? You say, well, the world's gonna, I mean, you say, well, we should go tell somebody about Jesus. Of course, I get that, we should. But I think what that says a little bit to me is a mentality of, you know what, the world may end tomorrow, but I wanna live today. I wanna live. And this idea of planting Again, I think it reflects the nature and character of God. What did God do in the garden? He planted. And there's this expectation of a hope and a future. There's this expectation of, of a harvest, of something that good that's going to come from the ground, even in the midst of, of something bad. And it's, it's a physical, tangible act of this earth that's daily, it's small, it's, it's progressive, you know, we actually got a garden in this year because we weren't on the road. You know, usually my son Isaac, who's our, our green thumb, he goes out and plants everything in late April, and then we go on the road for two months, and he comes back and cries, and he just looks at it and says, why do we have to be gone for two months? But this year, we actually had a harvest. We actually had some produce that came from that garden, and the fact that we were home with COVID, I just felt so right. It felt so good. You know, it was... It was, it was the, something that we could do, you know, that just had some hope to it during this time of, of lockdown. And just to be outside and to be in nature, it's just a very physical, tangible act that I think is tied into to hope. So we're told to build. We're told to live. We're told to plant. And then it says, and eat their produce. So the other verb here is Eat told to build and live and plant and eat. Now, eat is obviously something that's a necessity. It's something that we do because we have to to survive. There's a very utilitarian purpose in eating. But there's something beyond just sheer utility, like we have to eat to stay alive. When you look at the scripture, if you do a study, and I'd love to do this someday. I haven't ever done a full study on it. I've thought about it, and I've, I've dabbled in it. But I'll, there's a biblical, see, my view is there's a biblical theology of everything. And there is a biblical theology of food. There is. There's a lot in the scripture about the food, about food. But one of the things that we see, particularly in the New Testament, is this breaking of bread, of sharing fellowship around a meal. There's something sacred about that. Jesus did it with people. He would go to their home, and it would say, Jesus went to dinner at the home of. And he sat around a table and they, they shared food. And he, he sat with the apostles and he broke bread. And on the road to Emmaus, he, he broke bread. And this sharing of a meal with one another. There's something sacred about God's people gathering together and enjoying the fellowship that happens around a table. It's not merely utilitarian. There's also joy and delight in it. God didn't just make food to be consumed. He made food to be enjoyed as well. And so when I think about these things that God is telling his people to do in Babylon, as counterintuitive as it seems, it's so hopeful to me. Build. Live. Eat. Plant. Right? Not hunker down in your basement with canned goods and toilet paper. And wait for Jesus to zap you out of here. You know, that's not what he's telling us to do. We're not supposed to be hoarders of the rapture. 
We're supposed to occupy until he comes. We're supposed to be found faithful about the work. With our lamps trimmed and burning, we're supposed to be ready, active, doing what he's given us to do on this earth until he comes. That's our mandate. Don't bail out. Don't give up on life just because our circumstances has, have changed. Our hope is not in our circumstance, and our hope is not even in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord might get closed down. If we think of it as the structure, if we think of it as the building, that may not be available to us in the future. Can I just throw that out there? What makes us have hope is not the relics of the building or of our tradition. It's the tangible presence of the living God among us. That will not leave. I have the authority of scripture on that. We just looked at that in the Sunday school class, Matthew 18. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. We have his word on that. There won't be a time where God's people do not have the abiding, living, vibrant presence of the Spirit of God in our midst. And even though we may not in the future be able to have the ideal of what we remember, the nostalgia, maybe things change. Maybe we end up having to live the way that most Christians in the world in the last hundred years have had to live not having the blessings that we do here. Maybe we forfeit that, you know? I don't know. Maybe, maybe God just couldn't allow his people here to continue with the blessings with their heart drifted from him. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. Maybe, maybe that's what's gonna happen in our country. Maybe we end up looking more like the church around the world for the last hundred years than the spoiled, rotten children that we are here in this context. I don't know. I'm, again, I'm not making predictions. I don't know. I just see hope in the things that he's told us. Then he says, verse six, take wives and have sons and daughters. I'm sorry, I read this wrong, I think. Yeah, take, uh, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. I remember hearing when I was a little boy, hearing people say, you know, this world is so terrible. It's so awful. It's so horrible. I don't think anyone should bring a child into a world like this. I remember hearing people say that when I was a little boy. I'm thankful some of y'all didn't listen to that, right? Some of y'all wouldn't be here if your parents had that mentality. So what does God say to his people? Get married. Have children. Increase. Don't decrease. Don't do like Greece and Japan and all these nations who are economically starving themselves by their 1.8 birth rate. Multiply. Have many children increase, do not decrease. That sounds like the wrong advice when you're going into Babylon, doesn't it? Like when you're going into the worst possible hellish existence that you can imagine as a person of God, like we're gonna go into that and we're gonna have 
a big family and we're going to raise children. We're going to build houses and plant gardens and we're going to have a family. Why? Because we're still the people of God and that's what the people of God do. This is what we do. We don't stop being the people of God because our geography changed, because our circumstance changed, or because the government changed. We don't stop being us. We just do what the people of God do. We build. We live. We plant. We eat. We get married. We have children. I just, I've, I've known several people who got married this year. Praise God for that. They had to jump some hurdles, right? It wasn't necessarily easy, but they did it. Praise God for that. They got married. I know people that have had babies this year. Praise God for that. What a blessing. We're going to have one in 2021. I'm excited about that. We're going to increase and not decrease. Why? Because we're the people of God. That's what God's people do. We don't stop being the people of God because our guy didn't get elected. My my guy didn't run. I don't even know who my guy was, but he was, you know. (laughs) See, I I went and got political all of a sudden. I didn't mean to do that. But that's not what defines me. What defines me is I belong to Christ. So I don't really, you know, I care. I care, get it? Like I'm, I'll get, don't get me wrong. I would rather live in Jerusalem than live in Babylon. I'm going to be straight up with you. I prefer it. I really, really prefer it. There's a good possibility that may not be the outcome. Moving forward, I may, like it or not, get to live in Babylon. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live. I'm going to build. I'm going to plant. I'm going to eat. I'm going to do whatever I can to help my children marry faithful, godly spouses and have children and increase and not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, that's the wording of the ESV. When you look at the King James Version, it says, peace, not welfare. (laughs) I actually had somebody this last week, uh, you know, I shared this, this verse with somebody. And they said, well, you better explain, if you share that verse, that they're not talking that God's telling you to go on welfare. I said, you know, I, you're right. You're right. I need to specify that because, you know, well, he said we're supposed to go on welfare. No. Um, the, the word there in the King James is peace. But really, neither one of these words quite encapsulates what is meant to be said there. In the Hebrew, you know this word. It's the word shalom. It says, pray for the shalom of the city in which you are going to live, the one that I've sent you, I've sent you into exile there. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom, you will find your shalom. All right, guys, think about this. Work with me here for a minute. Can we imagine that God is telling us to pray for the shalom of Babylon? Boy, that's hard to get your head around. I mean, the Hebrews had a strong biblical admonition that you see, particularly in the Psalms and many other places out the Old Testament. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We can get our minds around that. That makes sense. We want to pray for the peace, the, the shalom of 
Jerusalem, but to pray for the shalom of Babylon? That doesn't make any sense. There's a lot in this passage. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. So I just looked up uh, in a concordance, what are some synonyms for this word shalom? Uh, what does it mean? Because when we think of, of shalom, sometimes we think of it, of course, as peace, but we, we tend to apply that sometimes to, you know, peace from war, that just there won't be any war. But that's not comprehensive in terms of what shalom means. So this is what it means. Uh, synonyms for, uh, from shalom, just from Strong's Concordance. Safe, well, happy, healthy, prosperous, whole, complete, tranquility, contentment. These are all contained in the meaning of shalom. So when we're supposed to pray for the shalom of Babylon, this is kind of the comprehensive overview of, of what we're supposed to pray for the city in which God has sent us to dwell as exiles. This is a sermon that's still writing itself in my own heart. You know, it would have been nice for me to have it nice and clean and polished before I brought it to you guys, but it's still doing a work in me. I'm still wrestling with it. I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like and what that means. I don't know entirely what that's going to look like for me in my prayer life. But we're supposed to work for the good of the city. We're supposed to seek the, the shalom of the city because it says in its shalom, in its prosperity, in its peace, you will find your shalom. Now, how does that work? Now, we're told something kind of similar uh, in the New Testament where we're told to pray for those who are in authority over us and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, it says, And aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think this is the kind of life that when it talks about our shalom, I think that pa this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 is, is maybe a model of what it's talking about. When it says, in the, in the shalom of the city, you will find your shalom. What is our shalom? That we get to live quietly, mind our own affairs, work with our hands. Again, this building that, the, that it talks about there. Uh, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this, to me, is a pretty good definition of what our shalom looks like. And so they're saying that when, when Babylon has the shalom, it provides a context where we can have this shalom as well. We're supposed to work toward that. You look at Daniel and his friends when they went to Babylon, they worked for the shalom of the city. And Daniel and his friends were put in positions of prominence uh, from Babylon, even into Persia. And what's interesting about them is they did not compromise their principles. They worked for the shalom of Babylon without compromising who they were. Daniel and his friends, they purposed in their hearts they would not defile themselves when they were in Babylon. We need to do that too. We're gonna live in, you know, Scripture says be in the world, not of the world. We may be in Babylon, but we need a purpose in our hearts. We will not be defiled by Babylon. So what can we do to bless? What can we do? And one of the reasons that Daniel was noticed was his ability to solve problems. 
He had the ability to solve problems. You know, I think of us as Christians, if, if we, just even within our workplace, if we have the ability to solve problems, that gives us opportunity, doesn't it? It puts us in a place where we can have influence. And that's what happened with some of God's people as they were put in positions of prominence, positions of influence. It ended up 70 years later with Cyrus that the Persians end up building the temple for God's people and there's this huge protection for them. And I mean, God's provision and protection came through, through the peace as they, as they worked for the prosperity and the shalom of the city. They found their own shalom. They found their own peace and their own protection and their own prosperity. So again, I don't know entirely what that looks like, but we do wanna make sure that we are thinking about how can we bless our neighbors, how can we love? How can we serve? How can we be light uh, in this dark time? And then verse seven, uh, let's see, verse eight. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This has jumped out at me recently because I can't remember a time, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the last three years, I can't think of a time when I have seen more public scandal of high profile Christian leaders than I have in the last three years. It's been exponential. Uh, they are dropping like dominoes. Uh, I'm a little more plugged into that world than some people, so I see it more and I hear it more. But I'm talking about A-list folks. Boom, 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 boom. And that's not bad in a way because if that's that kind of hypocrisy and that kind of sin within the leadership and also just this rampant uh, profligation of false prophets, false teachers, heresies, just it's flooding the church right now, flooding it from the very top levels of, of even the institutions that we used to trust, the most secure publishing houses, the most prominent denominations, the, the leadership at the top, the top levels, um, compromise and falsehood and immorality, it's, it's rampant. And so God's telling his people, don't get sucked into that. Don't listen to the false prophets who are they're speaking in my name and they're deceiving people but I didn't send them. He says, they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So as we go into this, this time where there's this cultural uh, worldliness all around us, we need to be on our guard against apostasy from within the church. We need to be committed to, tenaciously committed to sound doctrine uh, we can't merely have our guard up against the world out there. We also need to be cautious against false teaching that comes in. This, and at this time, as God was bringing judgment, the, the false prophets at this time just exploded. They were everywhere. And you had Jeremiah and one or two other guys who were true prophets speaking the truth. And they were way outnumbered and they were in the minority. So it's gonna be increasingly hard, I think, for us uh, to just 
you're not going to be able to go to a Christian book and bookstore buy. Well, there aren't even Christian bookstores anymore. You're not going to be able to buy a Christian book and just expect that it's going to be sound. You're not going to be able to just turn on the radio and expect that that teaching is going to be sound. Uh, we have to guard ourselves against false teachers. All right, so verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, plans for shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There's a a friend of mine who's a fairly well-known international Bible teacher and he went on a little rant one day. There's a sermon on YouTube that you can listen to where he said, I just see this on a, a plaque or I see a scripture poster in Christian's homes. He's like, I just want to go tear it down, take it off the wall and tell them that verse does not apply to you. This verse was written for the people of Israel at the time of the exile with Jeremiah in, in Babylon, this was written for them that in 70 years he was going to bring them back. This is not a promise that you should be as a Christian today claiming and applying for yourself. You have to understand the context in which this was written. This is not a verse for you. This is a verse for them, not a verse for you. Stop, stop using this. And I think I understand where he was coming from with that and why he was saying that. And that's because he was reacting very strongly against the, the use of this passage uh, by those who, who co-opt it to promote a prosperity gospel, uh, who use it as a, an unequivocal, God just wants to prosper you, and he's just going to give you only good things, and he has only good plans for you, and nothing bad's going to happen to you. And so he was trying to uh, dispel the, the use and application of this verse in a, in a kind of self-centered, self-gratifying uh, kind of way, and I understand that, and I get that, and it may be point well taken with that, uh, but at the same point, when I think about the heart of God, and this is where we can take principles from passages that are specifically applied to a certain person, people group in a certain time in history, and we can extract meaning and application for it in our day, when I think about the heart of God, and we know that God does not change, he tells us that in his word, when I think about his heart towards his people, I think, has God's heart towards his faithful people changed? I don't think so. And so if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, when God thinks about his people, does he think, you know, I really despise you and I want your life to go really bad? I don't think so. I don't think that's the heart of God. I think that this statement where he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, plans for shalom, and not for evil, to give you a, ho- a future and a hope. I think this ties in very much to, let's go New Testament, if we want to make sure that we're rooting our theology and, you know, let's say even something Pauline, go to Romans eight twenty eight. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean everything that happens is good. Going to Babylon wasn't good. But God has a plan that he wants to give us hope, doesn't he? Isn't that the heart of God? Um, And doesn't God promise us a future? It doesn't mean everything's going to go well. I get that. The prosperity gospel is wrong. We should be against it. It's wrong. But God's heart for his people is for them. And he does promise us a future and he does promise us a hope. 
Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God doesn't want a half-hearted seeking after him. He wants a full-hearted seeking. And he says, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God's promise here was absolutely confirmed and happened 70 years later. They came back. They rebuilt the temple. God fulfilled all of his promises. Now, do we take verse 14 and do we transfer that and say, oh, so that means America is going to be restored to the height of the Christian influence and the height of you know, Christian morality and all of that. I don't, I, don't think we, I don't think we can transfer that. I don't think that transfers in a, in a one-to-one correlation. Here's what I do know. I do know that we have promises within the scripture that speak to us about this ultimate restoration of all things. There are a lot of things that I don't understand about end time prophecy. There are a lot of things that I don't know about eschatology. That is absolutely not my strong suit. I I tend to be very sympathetic to what Charles Spurgeon said where he says, "I, I may not be able to tell you the meaning of the seven trumpets in Revelation, but I can put one to your ear and blow it and warn you to flee the wrath that is to come. <laughs> and I also like when, when Spurgeon says that, that God, that the scripture says, blessed are those who, who love his appearing, not those who have it all figured out. And so what I do know about eschatology, what I do know for certain is that God promises the restoration of all things. And while we may not see it in this lifetime, when you study the history of the Christian church, you don't always see the restoration of all things, this this fulfillment of a hope and a future and prosperity and all things being restored in their lifetime. That doesn't always happen. I mean, there are many Christians throughout church history who died martyrs. They never saw the fulfillment of the promise of God of this this peace, this, this prosperity, this this restoration of all things. They, they died, as Hebrews 11 tells us, still looking for the promise. It was, it was still out there. They didn't get to see it in their lifetime. So I don't make any promise here that, you know, everything that we've lost here in our country will, will be brought back and that God's saying 70 years we get a restoration. Absolutely not. I'm not making any claim along that. If God chooses to do that, I'll praise him. If that doesn't happen, I'll praise him. What I do know is that our hope is... Two things. It is in the abiding presence of the living God wherever we go. Not conditioned on our circumstance. Not conditioned on who's in control or who is in power. Conditioned on the fact that we belong to him. And if we go into Babylon, he goes with us into Babylon. He has promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even to the very end of the age, we have the promise of his abiding presence. That I know. We have his abiding presence to the very end of our life. And then we have the hope of the restoration of all things in finality. These are the hopes of the Christian. He doesn't promise that the economy will always be for us. He doesn't promise that the government will always side with us or always be favorable toward us. We don't have those promises in the scripture. 
And in fact, God sometimes in his sovereignty and in his mercy, he says, you know what? I'm not going to allow that to continue. You had it. You lost it. Sometimes he even says, you're not getting it back. I don't, I'm not claiming that's where we're at in America. I don't know. I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I don't, I don't know these things. Uh, what I am thankful for is I'm thankful for the promises of the abiding presence of the living God to the very end. I am thankful for the, I'm thankful for the future that we have and the hope that we have ultimately with him for all of eternity. The fact that all things will be made new. All things will be made right. Every injustice will be dealt with. And in the meantime, what am I going to do? And what are you going to do? Are we going to merely lament? There's a time for lament. Jeremiah did it. There's a whole book of his laments. It's appropriate at times. But I I feel like what God is saying to me, maybe to us, is I want you to build. I want you to live. I want you to eat. I want you to plant. I want you to have a future and a hope. I want you to get married. I want you to have children. I want you to increase. Don't decrease. Increase in the land of your captivity. I feel like those could be our marching orders. I feel like it's consistent with other teaching within the New Testament. Occupy till I come. When the Lord returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find us so doing what he left us here to do? Representing Christ well. Having influence. Being good at what we do. Working for the good of the city. Praying for the shalom of the city. Seeking to bless. Because in that we find influence. And we find our own shalom. And in that influence, it gives us an inroad to be able to talk about the living God. Didn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego talk about the living God? Didn't Daniel talk about the living God? They did. They used that influence that they gained through their faithfulness, their refusal to defile themselves with the the sinful atmosphere of Babylon. And God gave them a platform for influence and to be able to ultimately be provision for God's people even through the leadership in Babylon and Persia. So that's still a, a message that's still working its way in my heart. It's still, I'm still wrestling with it. I'm still sorting it through. I hope maybe you'll consider that. Maybe take some time to read those passages throughout the week and consider them and see what that looks like for your life. And, you know, is that indeed the message that perhaps the Lord is speaking to you and to us for this time. Let's pray and then uh, we will dismiss or uh, whatever. Heavenly Father, we are grateful as you say in your word that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will be with us to the very end of the age. Lord, we're not supposed to fear those that can kill the body and after that can do nothing else. We're to fear you who can kill both body and soul in hell But we also recognize that you are the one who has brought us to life. You've given us resurrection through 
your resurrection. Lord, you, you are the one that we look to. You are our hope. You are our future. Our hope and our future is not in our circumstance. Our hope and our future is found in your resurrection, in your abiding presence, and your promise to restore all things. So we rest in that, but we don't merely rest. Teach us how to be active in doing the things that you've told us to do. Teach us, Lord, how to build, how to live, how to plant, how to eat, how to increase and not decrease. Teach us these things, Lord, that we may live faithfully. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. I say amen to the message. I invite you to stand. You can take uh, him at his word and spend some time with those verses. One thing that kept running over and over through, and I want to spend more time with just digging through it, but uh, in all the things that God asks of them to do while they're in Babylon, it seems that uh, in every one of them you can find something about that that is demonstrating your trust in God, that you're trusting him. Certainly at a macro level of uh, trusting in his sovereignty, that where he's sending you uh, is what he, what, he, what he wants. But a whole bunch of things, you know, when you pray for the shalom of someone else, instead of demanding yours, it's, it's letting go. It's, it's counterintuitive, like you said. It's, it's something you think should be the opposite because you think you should hang on to it. And yet the principle of New Testament is very clear that that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what we should do is to let go and bless and serve others. It's in that that we actually find our blessing and our peace. Let's pray. Father, we're here. We want to trust you. So I, I, as, as we're closing here, as I'm blessing this body, I'm, I'm hoping that there's those of us here standing here that are saying, I'm trusting you, Father. So as we have our hearts inclined to you and yielded to you and place our faith and our trust in you, We receive the Holy Spirit who is that abiding comforter, that presence that will not leave us. And we yield ourselves to him, not just in this moment, but later this afternoon and tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, all week long. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. We receive him. Thank you for your blessing. May it rest upon us. May we be found faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace this morning. Thank you.